throughout our study of Isaiah 40 through 44, there has been an unrelenting focus on God. I wrote some of this stuff down. I want to read it to you. God is the one who brings comfort out of calamity and confusion. He proclaims that Jerusalem's hard service has been completed, her sins paid for. He announces good news to Zion. He captures the attention of the exiles, exclaiming, Here is your God. He restores justice. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. He is with his people. He has chosen them. He has not abandoned them to destruction. He answers the poor and needy. He brings about restoration. He puts his spirit upon his servant Israel. He creates, he sustains, he upholds. Fear is vanquished because of him. He is present in the midst of trials, obstacles, suffering, and pain. He blots transgressions out and remembers sins no more. He encourages, he motivates, he loves. There is no one like him. No rival God, no idol nothing. This seems to be the basic thrust of those first few chapters um, in this section of the text that we've been looking at in Isaiah 40 through 44. It's an unrelenting argument that the poet is making to try to proclaim that God is not only with his people in the midst of suffering, um, but he is better than any other option that they might have. One scholar, one of my favorite scholars, Walter Brueggemann, says, until now in the book, the accent has been completely upon Yahweh and Yahweh's power, fidelity, and incomparability. There's no comparison between the God of Israel and anyone else, even in the midst of Israel facing exile, being removed from the land, and having those rival gods all around them, which seem more captivating, which seem more um, intriguing, which might seem more legit than their God who has allowed them to be in this place here. The poet of Isaiah 40 through 55 is trying to turn that on its head a bit. And in Isaiah 44, 24 and following, there's a subtle shift beyond this uh, where the message of the poet is moving from this skilled and thoroughgoing defense of God's person and work to an explication of his plan. In particular, he's going to start naming names He's going to start identifying who uh, the intended human agents are in this plan that he's going to use to bring about Israel's restoration, reconciliation, redemption, salvation. At this point, it's been very general, and the emphasis has been on God is the one that does this, regardless of anybody else in the mix. Now, there's a shift where it becomes not just God, but this specific person that he is going to use. The specific person that he names in this text is very surprising, to put it very mildly. The person who is named here, and this is something that gets missed for us as contemporary readers very far removed from this time period and this people group and and this person that will be named, but it it introduces this surprise in the text. So I want to take just a moment or two to talk about surprises in life, things that come up out of nowhere and almost just make you smile a bit, maybe. The first category, as I was thinking about surprises, is food and drink. There's some food items, this sounds silly, but there's some food items where maybe you look at it and it looks kind of sketchy, kind of, kind of questionable, kind of maybe, maybe not, but then when you taste it, it's really good. Sorry, Kate. A couple days ago, Kate made this meal that was some fresh zucchini and fresh squash and some onions and some tomatoes and some, some good sauce and stuff. And then she dumped in this very trendy, very hip, very healthy grain, quinoa. Just let that soak in. 
So we have all these fresh vegetables and we have this quinoa. It looked absolutely atrocious. But I was very hungry. <laughs> and the reason why I'm saying this is because Kate, as she was in there cooking, you know, I'm in the other room with Porter watching TV or whatever, and she's like, I don't know about this. I don't know how this is going to work out. Uh, but when she served it, I mean, it, it was great. It was very fresh. It was nutritious. I felt healthy. <laughs> and it was nice. It was a pleasant surprise, right? Um, we often have these. Uh, we were on vacation uh, a couple weeks ago to Charleston, South Carolina, which anybody who likes food should love this town. Kate and I are novice foodies, if you will. We try to, you know, we eat quinoa. So I think that says a little something about what we're trying to do here. Um, but as we go on vacation, pretty much our guide to vacation is not amusement parks or hotels. I'm a cheapskate, so I'll stay anywhere if it's $50 and up as long as we don't get bed bugs. Kate pushes me on that a bit. Um, but we, we pretty much base our whole vacation on Yelp and whatever gets a rating of four and a half stars on Yelp as far as restaurants go. So we found this one restaurant called The Butcher and the Bee, and it's like in the middle of a place where you wouldn't expect a very nice, very trendy, good, healthy restaurant. But their whole thing is daily menus. It shifts every day. It's all local. It's all sustainable. It's all organic. You don't really know what you're getting until you show up, and they have this really cool chalkboard where they're putting in whatever the specials of the day are. One of them intrigued me. It was like this bowl of peppers and carrots. I forget what they called it, but it was a side. And I was like, I'm going to have some of those peppers and carrots because I like spicy things. Some of here, here's my preachery moment where I get to the point. Some of those peppers were surprisingly hot. You know, one guy, as I was ordering, he says, oh, you're going with the, the roulette of peppers. Because some of them were really mild and nice, and then I would dip into one of them. And it was just like, <sighs> and all they had was this... Uh, uh, water that was on the counter to drink, and it was like lukewarm water, and I'm like down in this lukewarm water, I'm like, this is not helping, it was like on fire, um, but it was surprising, the heat, it kind of lingered with you, which was a nice, pleasant surprise, okay, see where I'm going? Sometimes uh, you're surprised by the talents of the people around you, that moment when you're in the car, and the person next to you is singing the harmonies on that song that you love on the B or whatever we listen to these days. I don't know. Probably not the B. Hopefully not the B. But like, they're breaking out these really great harmonies, and you pull the old, turn the radio down real quick just to hear them, and you're like, that's awesome. You get uh, a glimpse into the talents of the person or people around you. Sometimes you're very surprised by what people can do. Or like, you're looking at your Facebook feed or your uh, Instagram feed, and you see all these pictures, no filter pictures, or sometimes with filter pictures, whatever. But I mean, People have an eye for the arts and for photography, or people are doing watercolors, or people are doing like these oil canvas paintings, or who knows, like people are very artistic, and when you see something like that and they say, I made that, you're surprised because you didn't understand that or didn't know that about that person. I knew this about this person, but my one example that I want to use for this is Megan Twilley. She's down with the kids today. She's really stinking funny. But if you, you know, it's, it's, it's so subtle, and if you just met her in a crowd, she's very unassuming, and you wouldn't think that. But like it, especially on Facebook or like in print, she's so witty and smart and funny. Or Kate and I sometimes go over to Twilly's house and play this game called Sequence, which is basically just a card game where you're trying to arrange lines of five chips. It's a cool game, whatever. But like Megan's just very witty and very funny, and from a first meeting, you wouldn't get that impression of her, but the more you get to know, you, more, you see these talents and these surprising things emerge from people. 
storylines. I talk about this all the time. There's nothing better than reading a book or watching a movie or watching a TV show where there's a twist at the end. And my go-to for twist is always M. Night Shyamalan and The Sixth Sense. The whole time you're tracking with it, you're like, oh man, what's going on here? And at the end, you understand that Bruce Willis is dead and has been for the whole movie. <laughs> Surprise, right? And again, if you haven't seen The Sixth Sense, sorry, it came out in 1996, so shame on you. Um, so we have this, these, these storylines that kind of take you one place, and you're like right on the edge of your seat until finally there's that twist at the end. Or my favorite, I'm, I guess, a glutton for punishment. Um, I like really sad movies, dark movies, things, you know. So there's nothing better to me when you're going along and you're watching this film, and you see like that camera start to pan away, like back away, and you're thinking, no. This is not the end of the movie, no. No, they wouldn't do that to us, no, no, no. And then it's all black credits, you're like, no! So it's like, the surprise has not been good, but the surprise is, we're gonna end it here and let you just be up to your own thoughts and imaginations as far as what happens next. Um, and at first I'm really ticked about that, and then the more I think about it, I'm like, that's brilliant. I love that. You know, it's like lack of closure, and it's just so you just get to stew in your own thoughts, which I love to do uh, for some reason. But these storylines, and you can see it in television shows, whether it's Lost or Breaking Bad or Mad Men or whatever it is that you guys are watching, 24, like it keeps you going, and then there's that twist. There's that surprise, and there's, there's really nothing greater than it. We also have those surprises in life. I almost had these two categories combined, life and God, but I... I don't want to assume that for all of us that the surprises that come in life, we automatically think this is God who's involved here. For some of us, like these life surprises that I'm talking about, they can be very great surprises. Um, Kate reminded me this afternoon. She said, are you going to talk about how you're surprised that we're actually married? I'm like, well, I wasn't, but I guess I could now. And the backstory, that sounds pretty ominous. The backstory behind that is, you know, we were friends for a long time, played on the same church softball team, uh, did ministry together, hung out, and you could ask either one of us, you know, do you like so-and-so? would be like, no, not at all. So I mean, we, we were hanging out for like five years, and there was not one iota of romantic interest at all until one day we're watching 24, and we just keep going over to this friend's house every Thursday to watch 24, and something clicks, and you're like, eh, eh, eh. All right. You know, it's like, that's the progression until one day it's like, okay, I'm going over to not watch this dumb show 24, which, yes, Evan, towards the end, it, it got bad. Um, I'm going over to see Kate. And there was that, that switch there, that surprise. This pregnancy. It's a surprise. A beautiful one, but I mean, we've been trying for quite some time. So when Kate comes home, and I'm sitting on the couch, and I think she had a more grand idea of how to bring this news into my life, but we were just sitting there, and she says something to the effect of, so I think I'm pregnant, to which I say, no, you're not. Very seriously, nah. Well, yeah, I think I am. I took two tests. Well, let's go get some blood work done. <laughs> you know, that's, 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 I need the facts. I need to see things on paper, uh, but we have these, at times, these surprises in life that are, are beautiful and unexpected and just really nice. For some of you, that might be one side of the coin, and the other side of the coin is the surprises in life that are absolutely heartbreaking. 
whether it's death or divorce or struggles in a relationship or loss of a job or uh, difficulties with finances or these things in life that you, you couldn't have predicted that happened to you and how you have to now try to work your way through them. For some of you, those things are very, very, very um, separated from God. For others of you, you see God as that intimate um, kind of the one who has a plan, the one who's involved in every aspect of your life, the good and the bad, and the really bad, perhaps. And you see that even God at times surprises you. Sometimes even that is a bit mundane, whether it's like you read the Bible. I saw somebody on Facebook yesterday throwing out a couple verses and said, like, I've never seen this before. I've never read the text this way before. And it's like his mind was blown because he saw something totally different. At other times, it's, it's something a bit more um, weighty where you start to think of maybe God's not the person that I thought he was. Maybe all those promises and all those attributes that I heard about in Sunday school or in private school or from that pastor that one time or even as you're listening right now, maybe they're not true at all. Maybe there's been something that's triggered a surprise where you're starting to view God in a totally different way. In this text that we're looking at in Isaiah, the agent that God chooses to use is very surprising. I need to continue to reinforce this because, again, we miss this in in our era as readers in the 21st century. Perhaps for many Israelites in the exilic community, what God was saying and saying that he was going to do was completely and utterly unbelievable. This whole set of texts, remember, is Israel who had gone through destruction and exile, at least a large portion of the community, had been removed from Jerusalem and had been brought into Babylonian captivity. And they're sitting around with Babylonian gods all around them, and these old stories rattling in the back of their head about God's faithfulness and God's provision and God's sovereignty. And as they look around, they don't see him anywhere. And what the poet keeps doing is all that stuff I was reading, um, comfort my people. You are loved. You are precious. You are a part of my life, I am with you. Whether you walk through the waters of trial or whether you're going through these things, I'm there with you. I have a plan and I'm working it out. I have a new plan. Forget the old stuff. I'm doing something brand new. Stay with me, stay with me, stay with me. But now he's, gonna, he's about to drop a bombshell on them that is so difficult for them to understand. So I'm just going to kind of walk us through the text a bit. I don't imagine this being too long, and then I'm going to have uh, five quick points of conclusion at the end. That always sounds like there's no way this is going to be short, right? I say, oh, this will be really quick. I just have five points. You're like, oh, gosh, glad my iPhone's charged or, you know, whatever. Just stay with me. Stay with me. Okay. Um, in verse 24, it says, this is what the Lord says, your Redeemer who formed you in the womb. All throughout Isaiah, we see this. This is what the Lord says. And then often there's this list of attributes about who God is, defining and characterizing who God is. And here, it gets kind of muted in the English, but we have a bunch of participles that are saying who God is. He's the one who forms you. He's the one who makes all things. He stretches out the heavens. He spreads out the earth. He foils or frustrates the signs of false prophets, he makes fools, he overthrows, he turns that stuff into nonsense, he carries out uh, his words to his servants. So here, God is being described as one who is trustworthy and able to be believed when he says something that's happening. So here he says, I am the Lord, that's like the cue, listen. I don't know if there's ever a situation where uh, you say that, maybe parents say, I am your father, 
go to your room. Maybe I should pull that one out, tuck that one away. Um, but there's times when you assert your authority. This is what God's doing at this time, saying, this is who I am, and this is all the stuff that I've done. Don't forget it. He's the one that has made all things, stretches out the heavens, and spreads out the earth by himself. This is creation language. What Isaiah keeps doing is bringing back God as creator, because if God's the one that's creating things, then God can also be the one that continues to create things in the present day and can continue to work out things in very huge ways. We say similar stuff today. You know, if God is the one who's created everything, then certainly God can meet this need or that need, or certainly God knows me because he has created me too. So we have these ideas, but here he's talking about creating things, and this is a very general statement that's concerns like everything in the world. And as we go through, it's going to get more pointed as we go. Here he's also the one who foils the signs of false prophets and makes fools of diviners. Just a little bit of ancient Near Eastern background history, because I know you're interested in that. At this time in Babylon, there's all sorts of diviners or people who are trying to read signs, basically trying to see what's going on in the world and how it lines up with what's going to happen. Even in our time, we still have people that will read the Bible in one hand with the newspaper in the other hand and try to predict what's next on the world scheme and what God, what God is going to do. And here, um, God is asserting himself, saying, it's not just these people in behind closed doors that are burning animal livers and however the smoke goes up in the air, that's what's going to happen. It's not just that. I'm actually the one that's in charge of that. And though they think they might know what the answers are, they really don't. Because he carries out the words of his servants. It's almost like the servants have to have the word of God in order to know what is going to happen with any specificity. One example that some of the commentators used was like in Jesus' birth, you had the wise men that saw a star and they followed it, but they just followed it to a general region. They didn't know the precise place where Jesus was to be born until they started searching the scriptures or heard from other people that had known the scriptures. See, so it's, it's not just burning livers and entrails of animals to figure out what's next. It's God has to speak these things into existence. But here, this stuff is very general, and now it's getting more specific. He says, I am the one who says of Jerusalem, it shall be inhabited. Note, there were people that were living there with the exile. Most people would say that it was the, the uppity-ups that were taken from the town of Jerusalem and from the surrounding regions because those are the people that Babylon cared about. The peasants and stuff maybe stayed behind. So it wasn't completely uninhabited, but here, God is just saying, I'm going to do a great thing in that city again, even though you think it lies in ruins, even though you're in a completely different area. The towns of Judah, they will be rebuilt, and of the ruins, he says, I will restore them. This is where it starts to get probably a little bit like, okay, yeah, whatever, for the people that are hearing this, this prophecy, because remember, they're in a different land, they haven't seen anything that's that's good for quite some time. They've experienced suffering and pain and whatever, and I'm sure that they're just like us, jaded, cynical, callous, and maybe not seeing the proof in the pudding, as they say. He also says um, that he is the one who says to the watery deep, again, one more note of ancient Near Eastern background history, because I know you love it. The watery deep here... Um, is this mythical idea that there's chaos happening 
And in most places, they had these myths about gods and how they would try to tame chaos. All throughout the Old Testament, we see God as the one who's really taming the watery deep, the tahom, not the word used here, but still that same idea. Um, even in Genesis 1, God is the one who tames the waters, has his spirit hovering over them so that they, have, they can't do anything to what his plans are. God is the one that subdues and tames chaos. He says to the watery deep, be dry and I will dry up your streams. In other words, I can do whatever I want. And you guys can't stop me. <laughs> so here in this text, God is saying, is, as, as he's going down getting more specific, he's saying, I'm going to do this great thing to Jerusalem and Judah and all these people. And the reason why I can do that is because the, the cosmic chaos monster ain't got nothing on me. In an ancient mind, that's like a huge statement. And he keeps going, and this is where we, we meet the biggest player of this text. He says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. The ancient mind would clue in immediately. The shepherd, it's not Cyrus. Cyrus is from Persia. He's not even an Israelite. The shepherd is the offspring of David, the descendant of David that was going to sit on the throne. This shepherd language is kingly language. It's important language. It's language that's reserved for select individuals. And you're saying Cyrus is your shepherd? That's not right. He keeps going. And Cyrus is going to accomplish all that I please. Cyrus is going to say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt. And of the temple, let its foundations be laid. Cyrus is my boy. Cyrus, the foreigner, the Persian, the one who's not of you, he's going to be the guy that I'm going to use. At this point, they probably were fuming or just really confused. Remember that surprise? Cyrus is the quinoa of the ancient Near East. Ooh, yeah, that's good. That's real good. <laughs> no, it isn't. Okay, the improbability of restoration. For these people, they had been destroyed. They had been removed from their land. All the stuff that God is saying is completely and utterly improbable. And then this bit about Cyrus, I didn't even really have a word for it. It's just like the blah of using a non-Israelite to bring this about. It's like, blah. I still can't even figure out what a word is for that. But in their mind, it's like, no, 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 no. It's like when it's the, the shot is backing away and the credits are starting to roll. And they're like, no, Cyrus, no. <laughs> what about David? No. You know, they're just kind of in this moment where, they're trying to figure out what's going on, and they can't. Let's jump ahead a, a real quick bit to, to us. Oftentimes, we try to figure out what God's up to, and we just can't. Oftentimes, we try to figure out what he's going to do and who's he, who, who he's going to use, and he can't. I was just having a conversation with Emmy uh, before church started where I was saying, I really wish that I was the guy that could meet the needs of this person, but I know I'm not. And it still hurts. You know what I mean? Like we all kind of walk around and think that we can reach everybody because we're so charismatic and good looking and we can talk right, <laughs> you know? But it just doesn't work that way. And even in that moment, I thought like, I'm not the guy. That kind of stings. And I don't know what God's going to do to work this situation out. My dad often says that a lot of times God gets blamed for things that he does not do. I think you could also go one step farther and say, we also try to figure out what God is, is doing, and a lot of times we're dead wrong. 
either on what he has done or what he's about, about to do as well. It gets even worse uh, for, the, for the first hearers of this text. There's like no pause between this huge bombshell where Cyrus is announced as the guy, and then in 45, 1 through 7, we get to this other weird bit of text. In verse 1, it says, This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to his Mashiach, to his Messiah. If this was in the Greek, it might be Christos, to his Christ. Cyrus, pagan, Persian, not Israelite. This is what God says to his Mashiach. Come on. For the ancient audience, they have, they would be so confused as to what's happening here, but he says this is what he says to his anointed. Kingly language, messianic language. Again, when we hear anointed, we automatically think Jesus. When they hear anointed, they automatically thought David. Both of those uh, correspondences between Cyrus as David or Cyrus as Jesus are completely and utterly scandalous. Okay? So in either way that we're looking at that, um, this is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and will level the mountains. This is like kingly language. This is God saying, this is my guy. This is the person that's going to bring you back. This is the person I'm going to work about my plan. Remember that new thing I'm about to do? Yeah, I'm going to use this guy to subdue Babylon and to let you guys go back to Jerusalem. All of this is for the sake of Jacob, my servant, of Israel, my chosen. I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honor, though you do not acknowledge me. This is back about Cyrus here. I am the Lord and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you will not acknowledge me. So that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, people may know that there is none beside me. I don't think that we can understand this text because we're so far removed from it, but I do want to try a bit. Cyrus's role, in a very simplistic way of saying it, is surprising, if not shocking, if not utterly scandalous. God's plan, at times, is surprising, if not shocking, if not utterly scandalous. We have placed him in a box that is so small. And the work that he's doing at times goes well beyond our comprehension of what he's up to. Um, I've seen situations, even in my own family, where it's like we're praying about something and thinking that it's going to work out this way and it doesn't. And then we say, oh, well, maybe it's going to go this way and then it doesn't. Oh, maybe it'll have, nope. And it's like we're so far away from where we thought it might be and our view of what God would do is so small that we can't perceive the new thing or the great thing or the people that he's going to use or even allow him to be surprising, if not shocking, if not utterly scandalous. I just like saying utterly scandalous. <laughs> okay, in Isaiah 45, verse 7, this is like the capstone of this set of texts. 45, 1 through 7, it, it hinges here. God lays out this big thing and says, Cyrus is my guy, and he's about to do something that you haven't expected or you might not even want him to do. And again, this is kind of like the underlayer of all of this is 
I can do this because I form the light and I create darkness. I bring prosperity, and there the Hebrew word is shalom. I bring peace, I bring integrity, I bring maturity, I bring completeness, I bring all these ideas, and I create. See there, it's uh, from the verb bara, which is the same in Genesis 1.1. God creates, it's a specifically a creating term. He creates disaster, he creates um, evil would be a different way of, of rendering that. It's from the Hebrew word ra, which is usually translated evil. Wrap your head around that for a second. I form the light and I create darkness. I bring prosperity or I do or I make prosperity or peace and I create disaster and evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Automatically, as 21st century Americans, we think, that ain't right. That doesn't sound good. There's lots of evil stuff out there, and I don't want God to be the author of that because that makes things really ugly and scary. Taken out of context, this is Brueggemann again, the claim of this verse is problematic. You think? It's saying that God becomes the author of evil, not just the author, but the creator of evil, of Ra. For it is affirmed that Yahweh creates evil, a statement that is sure to vex and puzzle taken in context, however, as the capstone of this set of text, the doxological claim, I love that, it's basically saying the way they praise God, the way that they show honor to God is rooted in this set of text here. The doxological claim wants to eliminate all rival claims, either about the power of the Babylonian gods or the autonomy of Cyrus or the voice of Israel in its dissenting mistrust. There is nothing around the world that is able to challenge or subvert or thwart what God wants to do. He's the one that creates the light and the darkness, and he creates the shalom and also the evil, the disaster. He's the one that does all these things. Brueggemann's helpful, but still not really, right? Because even there, it's like, what does that even mean where God is the creator of this stuff? Does that mean that the things that I've gone through in my life, that God has authored those things, or that God has created me for this to happen, for this bit of evil or problem or suffering or whatever? Again, go back into the ancient mindset. These are the people that have been removed from the land. They've gone through tough, tough stuff. They've seen the promises of God kind of break, and just they don't know what to do with it. And he says, I'm over it all. I'm in all of it. I'll work through all of it. And I hear this at the end of it. Stay with me. Trust me. Remember, because back in earlier chapters of this set of texts, when you're walking through the waters, I'm there with you. When you're walking through the fires, I'm there with you. Comfort. You are precious. You are honored. You are loved. Stay with me. There is none like God. That's the point of this text, but there's more to it than just that. Okay, I'm going to throw this out there. This is uh, Paul Hansen from an Isaiah commentary as well. Those who share this tenacious faith of the prophet can hold to this severe confession because of their unswerving conviction that God's final plan is light 
and wheel. Get it? The reason why you can say God creates light and darkness, he does peace or shalom, and he also has this kind of weird relationship with evil is because at the end of the day, you have this unrelenting belief that there's good on the horizon, that there's light out there somewhere, that there's hope in the midst of this plan, even when you go through the stuff. This empowers them to seek out the human evils that afflict their communities, and it allows them in the places where others see only the gloom of war to recognize the rays of light. There's moments in our life when we just sit in the midst of war and oppression and suffering, and we can't see the rays of light, or we don't allow ourselves to see it, or we just don't want to see it. And now we go back to our surprises. Regardless of if your surprise in life for this past week was a nice quinoa dish on a Tuesday night, or if it was something that was heavy and weighty and difficult, know this, and this is the point that I think Isaiah keeps coming at. There is hope, there are rays of light, there is a plan, and God's doing something. And he's using very improbable people to bring this plan to fruition. And the boxes that you may have constructed and placed him in might not be big enough for what he's doing. For a lot of us in the room, this is like, tuck this stuff away because the stuff hasn't come about yet. For some of us, we're right in the middle of it. And for others of it, it it's, it's in the rear view. And maybe your view of God has shaped or ch- it been changed because of these sorts of, of issues here. I want to just jump ahead to these conclusions here in the five surprises. They will go quickly. Stay with me. Surprise number one, God is in control. When you look around the world, sometimes you don't see that. When you look around your living room, sometimes you don't see that. When you look around, you know, maybe even this place, you don't see that or feel that. But the surprise of Isaiah is, even as you are sitting in the ashes and the heap of rubble and exile, God is in control, and he's got a plan. I could bust out into my Twyla Paris rendition of God is in control, but I won't, but I just did. Okay, surprise number two, God uses Cyrus, the pagan, the Persian, the non-Israelite. Not only does he use him, he's the shepherd that Davidic language. Not only is he a shepherd, he's the Mashiach. He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. He's, you don't talk about people using that kind of language, but God is using Cyrus. It's like blowing people's minds here. Surprise number three, God will use Jesus. I'm going well beyond the Old Testament here to see the same sort of language, shepherd, Messiah, the one who brings about not just temporary restoration, but complete and utter restoration and reconciliation is in Jesus. Cyrus, the Persian, the pagan, is a forerunner, in a sense, of Jesus. Surprise number four, God includes us. All of this stuff in Isaiah is gospel. It's that surprise. It's like you're going along watching these movies and these stories, and then there's that twist at the end. For us, the twist is the Son of God who becomes man who lives a sinless life, who ministers to people, meets people's needs, dies on a cross for our sins, raises from the dead, and then ascends into heaven. 
that's the mystery, that's the surprise, that's the, the shift or the change that allows us to be included, us, the pagans, the non-Israelites, the people who don't belong in this story. God not only has brought us into this family, but he continues to use us. Somewhere along the way, folks, we became entitled. We became the people who said, yeah, of course God uses me, or yes, of course I'm in this family. Why wouldn't I be? I dress nice, and I've got a nice haircut, and I'm suitable to be seen by others. We've become like the people that, that forget what we've been forgiven, and we forget the surprise that we shouldn't be in this story. But because of Jesus, we've been allowed to be in the story. Final one, number five. There's a surprise just in the sense of there's a hope for more surprises. There's a hope that things can change. There's a hope that in the midst of whatever it is you go through, God can work or God is working. And God might be using people that you wouldn't expect. You flip that around. At times, you've written yourself off as a viable candidate of who God can and can't use. And God might be using you in huge ways that you don't perceive. I'm just arrogant enough to think that God can use me to reach a lot of people. Or everybody. Which is stupid. I know that. Um, but maybe there's people in here that don't feel that they can reach anyone. And the surprise is, you already are. The surprise is God is using you in ways that you can't see. Sometimes it's the smallest things that can trigger hearts being softened and God working. A smile, a handshake, a hey, you look nice tonight. Hey, nice dress. Sounded good playing the guitar. I saw how you talked to that person in a really humble and God-honoring way. And you could really up the ante and just say, like, I've seen how, how faithful you are. And it, it changes me. It encourages me. There's ways that all of us minister to other people. And at times it's surprising and it's unbelievable because we think that God will use this person or that person and not the Cyruses of our community. But on the, other, on the other hand, some of you have just written off the fact that God can do anything anymore because he hasn't done anything in quite some time in your mind. And I want to try to sell you on holding out for hope. I want to try to sell you on comfort, my people. I want to try to sell you on you are precious, you are loved, you are honored. I want to try to sell you on the fact that your sins and your transgressions can be blotted out because of the infinite love of Christ, who in a very surprising way ministered to the people that no one expected him to minister to, and that includes you and me.